Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, Ezra chapter 7. I have stated on more than one occasion during our study of the book of Ezra that it feels as though we're traveling through a time warp and that we are reliving the book of Ezra in our day. Now, as we began to chapter 7 last week of Ezra, the issue of the temple regarding Ezra's role is not how it's often portrayed. That Ezra was the one who finally managed to bring about its reconstruction. Rather, when Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in 483 B.C., the temple had been completed. It had been set into operation years earlier, in 515 B.C. That is, it had been built, it had been furnished, it was functioning for more than 30 years prior to Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem. So, The first issue dealt with regarding the temple, that is just simply getting it rebuilt, was finally accomplished. But it was only because the Lord sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to goad these reluctant Jews into ignoring the outside political pressures and threats from nearby nations and communities, and instead to trust the Lord that building the temple would bring forth a blessing, not more tribulation upon the Jewish people. And since this temple would eventually be destroyed almost six centuries later by the Romans, and to this day it's never been replaced, we find the modern Jews right back in the same situation as those ancient Jews and they're responding in the same way. They want the temple rebuilt. God demands that the temple be rebuilt. But the political leaders of Israel won't do it. The wealthy are comfortable and ambivalent because they're fearful of the political opposition from friend and foe alike and of course because it could spark a regional conflict maybe even a world war and so as we meet together in August of 2014 Israel has once again been attacked and has been once again at war This time with the terrorist group Hamas, which the citizens of Gaza willingly elected to govern them. The unrest within Israel fomented by those who ought not to be allowed to live in God's kingdom land in the first place. Muslims who bow down to a false god. The constant attacks from Israel's nearby enemies. The out and out hatred and anti-Semitism in Europe and most of the United Nations membership, this just emphasizes that disobedience and unfaithfulness by God's people brings nothing but confusion and travail. Let us never forget that this dynamic of enemies, especially from Gaza, being a permanent thorn in Israel's side was ordained by the Lord. This was as a consequence, as a punishment for the people of Israel long ago not being obedient by ridding the promised land of all those who were in opposition to God's people. Now, although I had originally planned to finish Ezra chapter 7 and get well into chapter 8 today, we're not going to get quite that far because I cannot ignore the current war situation in Israel and the never-ending threats and attacks by their neighbors. Also, the regular kisses of deception by their so-called friends. 
So we need to be reminded, I think, today of how, biblically and spiritually speaking, this all came about so that we can have the context for understanding what is happening in Ezra's day, what's happening today, and what's going to happen tomorrow. Open up your Bibles to the book of Judges. Open them up to Judges chapter 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 271. Judges chapter 2. We're going to skip around in it a little bit and finish up in Judges chapter 3. Just a few verses. I highly recommend that this afternoon, this evening, you read all of Judges 2 and all of Judges 3 to get to fill in the details. But here we go. Starting at verse 1. Now the angel of Adonai came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you to the land I swore to your fathers and said, I'll never break my covenant with you. You, for your part, are not to make any covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but you must tear down their altars. However, you've paid no attention to what I said. What is this you have done? This is why I also said, I'll not drive them out before you. They will be on your flanks, and their gods will become a snare to you. When the angel of Adonai spoke these words to all the people of Israel, they began crying and wailing at the top of their voices. Skip now to verse 20. So the anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel and he said, Because this nation violates my covenant, which I ordered their fathers to obey, and they didn't pay attention to what I say, in the future, in the future, I will not expel ahead of them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. This is how I will test Israel to see whether or not they will keep the way of Adonai living according to it as their ancestors did. So Adonai allowed these nations to remain where they were without quickly driving them out. He did not hand them over to Joshua. Moving on to Judges 3 starting at verse 1. So these are the nations which Adonai allowed to remain in order to put the test to all the people of Israel who had not known any of the wars with Canaan. This was only so that the generations of Israel who had previously known nothing of war might learn about it. These nations consist of the five chiefs of the Philistines. All the Canaanites, the Sidonites, the Hivites who live in the hills of Lebanon between Mount Baal Hermon and the entrance to Hamat. They stayed there to test whether Israel would pay attention to the mitzvot, the commandments of Adonai, which through Moses he had ordered their ancestors to obey. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusi, taking their daughters as their wives, giving their own daughters to their sons, and serving their gods. What we read here is that because Joshua and the tribal leaders of Israel did not expel all the peoples and nations from the promised land that the Lord told them to, they only expelled some of them, the Lord determined to allow certain of these opposing nations to remain indefinitely in order to test Israel. And the nations called out are mainly the land occupied by the Philistines. Look at this map. That's the southern coastline of Canaan. And the land along the northernmost coastline of Canaan 
and the inland area from Mount Hermon to the hills of Lebanon. Today these areas are known as Gaza, Lebanon, and Syria. Israel have any trouble with those places? Further, even the name of the chief enemy people, the Philistines, remains in our modern time. The Greek word for Philistines is Palestinians. God's promises stand, whether they are for punishment or whether they are for blessing. And as anyone who knows much about the history of modern Israel realizes, the people of the former Philistine territory, especially Gaza, and of that land towards Mount Hermon, Syria, and for the last two or more decades, Lebanon, now virtually controlled by that formidable terror group, Hezbollah, has never quit attacking never quit harassing Israel and they openly declare their goal is Israel's complete annihilation. Europe, the UN, and as of late, the USA have made it clear that they are more interested in finding a peaceful arrangement of coexistence with the Muslim-controlled nations than they are with standing with God's people and God's nation. Israel. So, Israel finds itself in the exact fix the Lord said He'd put them in on account of disobedience as found in the book of Judges and we just read it. Now, what ideally can change this terrible situation? Is there any hope here? The model for reform and to return to God's favor. See, that's at the heart of what we've been studying in the book of Ezra. And specifically, we read the Reformation formula for God's people and the prophets Zechariah and Haggai who prophesied during this time. In Zechariah 1, 1-6, we read this. In the eighth month of the second year of Dariavesh, Darius, the following message from Adonai came to Zechariah, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Adonai was extremely angry with your ancestors. Therefore tell them that Adonai Zebaot says this, Return to me, says Adonai Zebaot, and I'll return to you, says Adonai Zebaot. Don't be like your ancestors, those ones we just read about in the book of Judges. Don't be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, Adonai Zebaot says, Turn back now from your evil ways and deeds, but they didn't listen or pay attention to me, says Adonai. Your ancestors? Where are they? And prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my laws, which I ordered my servants, the prophets, overtook your ancestors, didn't they? Then they turned and said, Adonai has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds, just as he intended to do. And then in Haggai 2, 15-22, we read this. Now please, from this day on, keep this in mind before you begin laying stones upon each other to rebuild the temple of Adonai. Throughout the whole time, when someone approached a 20-measure pile of grain, he found only 10. And when he came to the wine press to draw out 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you with blasting winds and mildew and hail on everything your hands produced. But you still wouldn't return to me, says Adonai. So please keep this in mind from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of Adonai's temple was laid, and consider this. 
There's no longer any seed in the barn, is there? And the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate tree and the olive tree, they've, they've produced nothing yet, right? However, from this day on, I will bless you. The words of Adonai came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month as follows. Tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overturn the chariots and the people riding in them. The horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And what we find now is that a sincere return to God is required if Israel's position before God's to change. But that the visible and the tangible sign of that sincerity is what? The rebuilding of the temple. He says, the moment the foundation of the temple is laid, this curse of unrest and tribulation and struggle will end and it will be replaced with blessing and abundance. Further, the Lord says that He will overturn the thrones of kingdoms, nations opposed to Israel. And then there is this little small phrase to end verse 22. It says that the soldiers of these wicked nations will fall how? Each by the sword of his brother. In other words, the enemy shall fight among themselves. They will destroy one another. Who has emerged? is Israel's truest enemy and will no doubt be so until Messiah returns. Islam. And what do we see among the the adherents to Islam? Hatred and war between all the factions of Islam as they kill one another, their brothers, by the thousands on a near daily basis. They hate one another almost as much as they hate Israel. And this is precisely as promised by God. But for modern day Jews, rather than take God's word to heart, we find that the temple mount that belongs to Israel is open for their pagan enemies to visit it, but it's closed to Jews the order of the Israeli government. Is that wild? And although many in Israel cry out to rebuild the temple so that they can return to God and resume fellowship with Him, and even though all the preparations and furnishings, the ritual implements needed, they've been completed. They're in storage. Israel's government refuses to reconstruct the temple because they fear not only the wrath of the Muslim world, but also political backlash from Western governments and especially that of the United States. I know of no God-sent prophets in recent times urging Israel to be obedient and faithful and to trust God to ignore what their eyes see what their ears hear and instead to rely on God's power but as the courageous ones among the Jews have lobbied to build the temple because they know from studying Holy Scripture no more divine instruction or warning is needed likely no more is forthcoming All that is left is for Israel to choose to obey or to continue to disobey what's already written. They must decide 
to continue in their wicked ways of their ancestors this caused all this turmoil in the first place or they must turn and they must follow God but Christians and Messianics we're hardly in the clear in conjunction with God's commandments to Israel to be obedient and to expel God's enemies from the land and to build his house is God's commandment that Christ's ecclesia what we call the church is to be enthusiastically and wholeheartedly in tune with Israel we are to stand with Israel we are to urge them to follow what they know they are supposed to do but up to now they haven't now sadly prophecy appears to tell us that not until the predicted period of tribulation and the latter days will the temple finally be rebuilt and it looks very much like it's going to be at the behest of the Antichrist who will deceive everyone and once the temple is built at his order he will then enter the Holy of Holies and declare himself to be God but I openly admit that while the bulk of biblical evidence leans in that direction no scripture passage directly says words to that effect so I guess we're going to have to wait and see just what circumstances come about that makes temple reconstruction happen and let's not forget the most critical situation that will have to be dealt with is what to do with the Dome of the Rock and with the Al-Aqsa Mosque that currently sit on that Temple Mount now as we continue with Ezra chapter 7 the situation is that although the temple is built and functioning Ezra is coming from Babel the city of Babel with authorization from the king of Persia to reform the priesthood and the Levites and the lay people of Judah in the 30 or so years since the temple has been rebuilt with Zerubbabel at the helm something has gone terribly wrong we are introduced to the person Ezra as we made it to verse 10 last week of chapter 7 and we found that his abbreviated genealogy was structured to prove that he had credentials as a priest and that extended it all the way back to Aaron 800 years earlier and yet even though Ezra was an expert on the Torah there's no evidence that he had ever acted in the typical capacity of a priest and we're going to soon see when he arrived back in Jerusalem even though he had authority over the priesthood there was already a high priest in, in place and Ezra in no way became the new high priest we also do not find him in charge of the ritual so even though he is by hereditary rights a priest he is going to operate somewhat above the priesthood with the authority with authority over the priesthood yet not within customary Torah prescribed priestly functions see so much like Samuel who transitioned Israel from the era of being governed by judges to being governed by kings we find that Ezra is also a transitional figure he creates a new office of leadership called Torah teachers and this fits right in with the new customs and traditions of ritual and worship that the Jews had created up in Babylon and then brought back with them in their return from exile thus Torah teachers are going to play a major role in the development of Judaism 
because they operate independently from the priesthood. The upshot is that over time, the authority of the priesthood to righteously administer the law was weakened because now others who were not of the tribe of Levi, the tribe authorized by God to protect his word and officiate rituals and serve him directly and to administer justice, they would be looked to, these Torah teachers would be looked to by the people as the experts of God's laws unexpressed in the Torah. The Torah teachers, not the priests. Therefore, the priests would mainly function, or would mainly be used for ritual functions. Ritual functions is an important thing, for sure. But when actual knowledge, hear me, please, when actual knowledge of the Torah is separated away from those who are ordained to do the Torah rituals at the temple, this is a formula for error and then finally disaster. It's hard to understate what an important development with long-range implications that is happening here in the seventh chapter of Ezra. And since Judaism and Christianity developed in a nearly parallel manner, it is no wonder that in modern times, church leaders and pastors have but minimal actual working knowledge of God's Word and instead are trained in seminaries to focus mostly on performing church and administrative functions. Let's reread part of Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Turn your Bibles, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, to page 1125. We're going to start reading at verse 11 and go on to the end. Ezra chapter 7, starting at verse 11. Here is the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the Kohen and Torah teacher. The student of matters relating to God's mitzvot, his commandments, and his laws for Israel. From Artaxasta, king of kings, to Ezra the Kohen, the priest, scribe of the law of the God of heaven, etc. Herewith I decree that everyone in my realm who belongs to the people of Israel, including their priests and Levites, who of his own free will chooses to go with you to Jerusalem, should go. You are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire how the law of your God, of which you have expert knowledge, is being applied in Judah and in Jerusalem. You are also to bring with you the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have voluntarily offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you receive throughout the province of Babel and the voluntary offerings of the people and the Kohanim, the priests, that have been offered willingly for the house of their God in Jerusalem. You are to spend this money carefully on young bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your kinsmen to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. The articles given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver to the God of Jerusalem. Whatever else may be needed for the house of your God that you, have to, that you have to supply, you may supply from the royal treasury. I, Artaxasta, the king, herewith order all the treasures in the territory beyond the river to do carefully anything Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, up to three and a, half, uh, three and a third tons of silver. 500 bushels of wheat, 500 gallons of wine, 500 gallons of olive oil, and unlimited amounts of salt. Whatever is ordered by the God of heaven is to be performed exactly for the house of the God of heaven. For why should wrath come against the realm of the king and his sons? Moreover, we herewith proclaim to you that it will be illegal 
to impose tribute, taxes, or tolls on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, servants, or laborers in this house of God. And you, Ezra, making use of the wisdom you have from your God, you are to appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people in the territory beyond the river, that is, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach those who don't know them. Whoever refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed on him swiftly, whether it be death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. Blessed be Adonai, the God of our ancestors, who has put such a thing as this in the heart of this king, to restore the beauty of the house of Adonai in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, before all the king's most powerful officials. So I took courage since the hand of Adonai my God was on me and I gathered together out of Israel key men to go up with me. True to form for the book of Ezra, verse 11 is a kind of a preface that explains that what follows is a letter of authorization that King Artaxerxes sent along with Ezra on his migration to Judah. So while the preface is written in Hebrew, the text of the king's letter now changes to Aramaic. So this is the official language of the Persian Empire. Now notice in verse 11 that Ezra is given two titles. Priest, Cohen, and scribe, Kafar. But more specifically, he is called HaKafar Debar Mitzvot Yehoveh. Most literally, that means the scribe of the words of the commandments of Yehoveh. The meaning of the term scribe evolved throughout the several biblical eras. And the context makes it very clear that in modern terms, the word scribe is here meant as a person who is an expert and a teacher. In this case, teacher of the Torah. And of course, the words of the commandments of Yehovah means God's commandments, which we could rightly translate into English as either the law of Moses or the, the Torah. So while the complete Jewish Bible translation is not a word-for-word literal translation. It is a good and very well-rendered dynamic translation that gives us in the meaning uh, the meaning of it in modern terms, modern terms that Bible students can understand. Ezra was a teacher of the Torah of God's laws. He was not a teacher of tradition. And this is a most important distinction. He was also of a priestly line and therefore is rightly a priest. And yet will not hear of him ever performing common priestly functions. The point of highlighting that he is a hereditary priest is to give him credibility to deal with the priesthood in Jerusalem. And that he is a Torah teacher gives him the credibility to teach the Jews the proper understanding of God's word and even to correct and reform the rituals of the temple if needed. Now verse 12 simply verifies that anyone who sees themselves as part of Israel and who wants to migrate from anywhere in the Persian Empire to Jerusalem is free to go. Look, this was originally King Cyrus's policy. And there's no indication that since his day had that policy ever changed. So this is important to keep in mind as we think about the book of Esther, for instance. And all those Jews up in the Persian Empire because they chose by their own free will to stay there and not return to Judah. And even when Haman, thank you, pretty weak, but thank you, 
even when Haman was going to have them killed, they still could have packed up and left. Couldn't they? Nothing kept them there. After all, this plan, remember what we learned in Esther, this plan to kill the Jews was formally announced. It was distributed in every language a year in advance. But we don't hear of any Jews leaving. It reminds one so much of pre-World War II days when anti-Semitism was at a fever pitch throughout parts of Europe, especially Germany. And yet, most of the Jewish population made the conscious decision to hang on and remain even though there were options to leave. That decision was catastrophic. And today we see that anti-Semitism has risen once again throughout much of Europe and even with a welcoming Jewish state to flee to any time they choose, the vast majority of Jews choose to stay put in their European communities and hope for the best. See, once people have settled down and established a home and a family and a business or an occupation and made deep community ties, it's only a few who would choose to do something as drastic as to leave their country for another regardless of the perceived dangers. The Jews have proved themselves infamous at refusing to see the handwriting on the wall. Denying the Gentiles would seriously attempt to harm them in mass. And this because it doesn't make any sense to them. But therein lies the problem. When one sets aside the spiritual and sees only through carnal eyes, then self-deception inevitably follows. I want us to think for a minute. Why, in verse 12, that the king would list those who could return to Judah in terms of three different classes of people. Israel, the priests, and the Levites. It can only be that Ezra himself must have had a hand in writing this letter. Which really amounts to a royal decree. Speaking of Israel, the priests, and Levites as three separate groups is a technical matter that only Jews would understand. Pretty learned Jews at this point in history. And even so, it becomes clear that because of their exile to Babylon and because the priesthood had essentially stopped functioning while in exile and because new man-made customs and traditions had been created among the Jews to accommodate having no temple and therefore no operable priesthood the God-ordained meaning of these important technical terms of God's Torah began to blur yet apparently it was still understood that Israel here meaning the common citizens the lay people were entirely separate from the priests who were entirely separate from the Levites. This is a very good time to recollect that at Mount Sinai during their exodus from Egypt the Lord divided and separated the tribe of Levi away from the other tribes of Israel so far that they were not to be counted as among their brethren. Numbers 8.14 In this way you will separate the Levites from the people of Israel and the Levites will belong to me. But in the book of Numbers the term Levites was still a general reference to the whole tribe of Levi. All 
the tribal members of Levi, without exception. However, in addition to this disturbing, unexpected removal of the tribe of Levi from the other tribes of Israel by the Lord, those Levites who belonged to the clan of Eleazar, Eleazar was Aaron's third son, they were divided and separated away from the remainder of the other their other Levite tribal brothers, and they were ordained as God's priests. Thus, priests and Levites, although technically they were all from the tribe of Levi, became two separate and distinct categories of temple workers. The priests could perform temple rituals, but the other category, the Levites, could not. The Levites were blue-collar temple workers who worked for the priests. Now I want you to keep this in mind as we go forward because shortly this is going to play a significant role in our story. Now verse 13 explains the reason for this formal written royal decree from Artaxerxes. Ezra was to be the chief examiner of how the temple and how Jewish society in Judah was or was not properly following and applying God's law, His commandments. In other words, Ezra was to evaluate if the lay people, the priests, and the Levites who had some time ago migrated back to Judah were being properly Torah observant. I want to pause and ask ourselves a question. Why would Ezra and also the king think that such an inquiry was needed? Obviously, the king wouldn't know Torah observance if he was hit in the face with it. So it had to be that Ezra, the Torah scholar par excellence, had become aware that whatever was being practiced by the Jews in Judah, it was far from what God ordained in His Torah. And so his zealousness for the Lord and concern for religious propriety led him to obtain royal approval to go down there and get things straightened out. A rich gift of silver and gold given by the king and by his royal court was to be taken on the journey. But in addition, more silver and gold collected from various donors in the vicinity of Babel were also to be taken to be used for temple purposes. All of these donations were entirely voluntary. And then verse 17 outlines the use for this treasure of silver and gold. It's to be used to purchase sacrificial animals and other items used for temple service. Verse 18 offers Ezra some leeway since the final tally he will go with isn't yet known as the letter of the king is prepared. So if the sum allows for it, and there's more than enough for all the sacrifices, then Ezra can use his own discretion on how to spend the remainder of it. However, says verse 19, all of it has to be earmarked for the temple. It's not for personal or any other use. By saying this, it means that Ezra is going to be held accountable. And further, it's a warning to any other Persian officials not to try to skim a little bit off the top. Get a little piece of the pie. Kind of a customary practice for politicians. But even more, says verse 20, if at some point more money is needed, it can be obtained from the Persian treasury. However, as we learned in the previous chapter, in reality, those funds are to come not from the national Persian treasury, but only from the taxes collected in the Beyond the River Satrapy, of which Judah is just one of its provinces. Even so, what Ezra was given was beyond generous. Now in verse 21... A direct order is given to the various levels of officials in the Beyond the River Satrapy. This means that this order extends beyond the governor of Judah and all of Judah's officials. So in addition to the gold and silver <clears throat> already allotted, <clears throat> Ezra can ask and receive 
up to 7,000 pounds of silver. 500 bushels of wheat, 500 gallons of wine, 500 gallons of olive oil, and unlimited amounts of salt. And by the way, by now salt was available rather inexpensively. But still it had to be mined with human labor and therefore it wasn't free. And then we see the ulterior motive for King Artaxerxes' largesse. In verse 23 he says that he wants to be sure that nothing offensive is done against the temple of the God of heaven, meaning the Jerusalem temple, because he didn't want wrath to come against himself or against the Persian Empire. This is not some throwaway phrase. The king very much believed in the power of the various gods worshipped by the many different ethnic groups that comprised his kingdom. And his motto was, better safe than sorry. Pay them all. Show respect for them all. Therefore the king and his empire ought to prosper. The God in heaven in Jerusalem wasn't special to Artaxerxes, so far as we know. This God was just another of the many. And then in another show of respect for the temple, None of the priests, Levites, or temple workers of any kind were to be taxed or should they have to pay any kind of tribute or pay any kind of toll. Meaning as they journeyed through the roadways, they didn't have to pay local taxes for the privilege of travel protection. And to further demonstrate Ezra's high commission, he is given all authority to appoint the judicial officials, not just over the people of Judah, but over the satrapy of beyond the river. So, it certainly appears that Ezra had exceptional authority, not only over the temple and the priesthood, but even beyond the province of Judah and all of its people. However, there was one large caveat. The people over who the judges he appoints had any authority was not over everyone but only over the worshippers of the God of Israel mostly Jews I want to back away from this story for a moment and let's understand that although King Artaxerxes was certainly being magnanimous in all of his favorable decrees on behalf of Ezra and the Jewish people he also has his own agenda in this Judah, at this moment, was of critical importance to the king because of its strategic location. Egypt was at this very moment in full rebellion. And if you look at this map, you see that Judah lay just north of Egypt. Unless Egypt wanted to go the long way around traveling up the east side of the Jordan River in order to threaten the Persian cities, they would have to traverse through the province of Judah. Judah needed to be squarely in the king's pocket. They needed to be a reliable partner who would willingly block any movement of Egyptian military through this key province. Now obviously, Ezra was a hand-picked representative of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra essentially was given power above the leader of the secular part of society, the provincial governor, as well as power above the high priest, the leader of the religious part of Jewish society. So the king trusted Ezra and he needed him in order to maintain good relations with the Judahites so as to keep Judah in the Persian sphere of influence. So he gave the Judahites exceptional autonomy and privileges so that they would not be tempted to accept any overtures to join with Egypt in rebellion. Now we're going to see this authority hierarchy change a bit as Nehemiah comes into the picture. Well, the Persian kings tended to be enlightened monarchs. 
And they were satisfied that various provinces could follow their own customary laws provided they also followed Persian law. And no doubt Ezra proved to the king that the Torah laws were no threat to Persian laws. Thus the idea is not that Ezra would be allowed to lord over all people in the satrapy of beyond the river as to their religious practices, but he would be the final authority on the religious practices of the Jews and, as we're specifically told, any person who voluntarily worshipped the God of the Jews. So the king finishes up his royal decree with a curse. That anyone who refuses to obey the religious law as determined exclusively by Ezra and anyone who refuses to obey the law of the king of Persia, Persian law, was to be judged and punished up to and including death. Now I hope you see, because this is important as we continue forward, the extent of the power and the authority placed into the hands of Ezra. And the tremendous degree of trust that the king of Persia and his royal court must have placed in him as well. See, this man was no petty official. Ezra's reach was long. His decisions were final. The decisions couldn't even be disputed by the appointed Persian authorities unless Ezra was breaking Persian law. This is... It is all the more appropriate that when the biblical text then returns to the Hebrew language now. We're done with the Aramaic letter. Now we return to the Hebrew language in verse 27. We hear Ezra profusely praising Yehovah that he could put such a thing as this into the heart, into the mind of the king of the Persian Empire. Indeed. It's appropriate that this chapter would end by explaining that the God of Israel would influence the pagan Gentile Artaxerxes. This is a principle that is easy to set aside and instead believe that the only folks whose minds are influenced by the Lord are his worshipers. But from the Pharaoh of the Exodus... Now to King Artaxerxes of Persia, we see the principle repeated that Yehovah knows no boundaries. He is the God of all human beings. And He will influence anyone that He deems will advance His will on earth. So never stop praying even for terrorist leaders to hear the voice of the God of Israel. The truth is, it could lead to their just destruction for the benefit of God's people or it could lead to their unmerited salvation as they become part of God's people. We don't know which way it would go. And as hard as it may be to swallow sometimes, you know, God created them too. And He is available to be their Lord and Savior anytime they're ready to yield to Him. The final chapter of verse 7 really belongs as the first verse. Rather, the final verse of chapter 7 really belongs as the first verse of chapter 8. Because now the subject changes and the scene shifts to Ezra organizing for the arduous and the dangerous journey he's about to make from Babel to Jerusalem. And we will deal with that next time.